Good afternoon, and welcome to the Calories and Rice podcast, the second best China Africa podcast you've ever heard. Broadcasting from the heart of global China Africa research, Washington DC. I'm your host, Winslow Robertson, and I will be joined by the well-rested Dr. Nkemjika Kalu, back from California. Dr. Kalu, we're podcasting on not the happiest of circumstances because on Thursday, Nelson Mandela passed away, and I was wondering if if you might want to share your thoughts on his passing. Yeah, thanks, Winslow, for the opportunity to talk about the loss of Madiba. Honestly, I'm still a little, a little shaken up by it and finding it really hard to come to grips with the fact that he's gone. And really, when you look across Africa, we have yet to see leaders of that caliber step up and um, and continue where he left off. He's left a high standard in terms of responsible leadership, reconciliation, peace, and um, just humanitarian concern. And um, we're grateful for his efforts, and we, we pray and hope, I pray and hope, that we have a young group of African leaders that are coming up to um, to continue and to continue in, in the work that he's done and to make sure that justice is all everywhere, including South Africa. Uh, that's beautifully put. Th- thank you for, for, for sharing your thoughts. All right, I'm going to gently segue into the show now. Today's episode is brought to you by our two sponsors, African Development Jobs and the Africa Daily. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nina Oduro, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. The Africa Daily is an online communications platform that provides the most up-to-date journalistic and academic information on China-Africa relations. The form incorporated in the website also facilitates the cultural and informational exchange among the diaspora communities in major Chinese and African cities. We finished discussing the Democratic Republic of the Congo last month, and during that period a very significant conference was held in Baltimore, the African Studies Association Annual Meeting, held in late November of every year. I had the good fortune of attending two out of the four days the conference was going on, and I had the chance to meet Miss Vivian Liu, a third-year anthropology PhD student at Stanford. She focuses on growing economic networks linking African merchants to production and trade sites of everyday goods in Asia and the Middle East, in particular Nigerian merchant class mobility. She studied anthropology, in parentheses, ethnic studies, close parentheses, and African studies for her BA from Columbia University, and she blogs as well. Vivian, after attending the African Studies Association annual meeting, were your China-Africa juices flowing so strongly that you immediately wrote your PhD when returning to Stanford? Yes, actually. (laughs) No, but uh, not quite. But I did take advantage of the intellectual juices you mentioned um, to focus on finishing my dissertation grants, which we need to fund our dissertation research. Um, And mine will begin next summer. Ooh. It was productive in some ways, um, but mostly a lot of socializing, as you as you hinted. Oh, Good networking. <laughs> yeah, or I'm not even sure if I'm at a stage where I'm networking that successfully, but you know, talking to people you want to talk to. <laughs> I I thought it was spectacular networking. There was happy hours, yeah. dinners, and just a lot of really cool people studying really cool things. Who I yeah. It, I made like a list of um, five professors I wanted to meet and then kind of pursued them, basically. Did you actually meet them? <laughs> yeah. Yes. 
That's that's pretty cool. What was your favorite moment from the conference? Go. My favorite moment with the conference, I guess I actually unknowingly sat across from Deborah Bodigam at one of those networking <laughs> events and nice. started talking to her, and I actually didn't realize she um, had, had, was, had been to Nigeria recently and was wanting to go back. And so that was interesting to me because that's where my dissertation work will be. That's really darn neat. Dr. Kalu, did you attend the conference? Unfortunately, I had some um, family obligations in California that kept me from attending the conference, and then I stayed on for vacation, thus my well-restedness. Um, <laughs> but I believe you attended for both of us. Yes, I did. <laughs> I recruited everyone to get on our podcast. All right. So today's episode will have us look at China-Africa relations through the lens of an anthropologist and discuss the state of the Africa-China field following the ASA. So, Ms. Lu, let's get to it. Could you talk a little bit about your background? How and why did you get into this topic as an anthropologist? Sure. I studied African studies and anthropology in undergraduate. And uh, actually, I was really fortunate my first year to take a class offered by Mahmoud Mamdani, um, <laughs> who's an Africanist political scientist slash hired in multiple departments. But anyway, he taught a class called The Major Debates in the Study of Africa. And we were, through that, introduced um, to really wide interdisciplinary debates about African history, colonial rule, foreign intervention. Um, and it was one of those kinds of classes that really opened your eyes. And so I kind of, I guess, continued from that track and um, how I got to my current research topic was I was actually studying Swahili in Tanzania for Fulbright Hayes, and I remember people asking me, Tanzanians asking me about China and if I had connections to Chinese factories. Um, <laughs> and I'm Chinese American, so one, I don't have any factory connections. But, Damn it! Uh, <laughs> we can't be friends now. Yeah, Off the exactly. podcast. Uh, I was a massive disappointment in that way, but on the other hand, I. I um, I guess I became really intrigued at these questions that people were asking me and kind of became attuned to the massive network that is importing a lot of material goods to Africa right now. And so that was that led me to my thesis project where I worked in uh, Lumumbashi in southern DRC asking questions about that trade network. And then um, for my dissertation now, I'm, I'll be based in Nigeria, again working on similar questions with uh, African merchants and their travels abroad. Two short things I want to add to that. One, had I known you were DRC-based, I definitely would have had you on the last week of our DRC month. So oh, well, I'm, it can be a DRC five weeks. Yes, we can <laughs> retroactively put yeah. it in there. Um, and two, one of my life goals is to debate Mahmoud Mamdani, who is like a super big name in African studies, but who right. I think is wrong about like everything. <laughs> So I think it's so cool that you took him as an undergrad and, and that, that really, I mean, we recently had um, two people on the podcast who are from Columbia University, uh, the J School, and they just oh. produce a lot of really cool Africa people, it seems like. So good good for you. Yeah, good luck with that. I watched a debate once between him and John, um, the, who is it, Pender, I think he was Pendergast, the, the Pendergast or whatever. The president of Save Darfur at the time. Oh. Like, in the height, 
that's not Joe. I don't remember no. who it was exactly, but it was the president of that um, organization, the Save Darfur organization. It was quite a debate. I felt like they were speaking different languages. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right, Dr. Kobe, you want to get in here? Yeah. Um, so, Vivian, earlier we talked a little bit about your work, and we're really interested in um, understanding your perspective on China-Africa relations, and especially fieldwork, because fieldwork is something that's been missing in the literature, in in some most of the literature today, um, and I can say that because I've been through the literature. <laughs> <laughs> and truth of the matter is that I think that most, most of the leading researchers in China-Africa relations are really anthropologists, at least at heart and at, at the core of the work that they do. What are your thoughts on that statement? What, what makes a good anthropologist and a good researcher on China-Africa? Yeah, that's a really good set of questions. I think, well, I hope, first of all, that most people um, studying China-Africa would do more anthropological fieldwork, like you said. Um, but I also have the impression that it's mostly... I guess more from a macro, often from a macro lens of policy or media analysis. I think anthropology has a lot to offer, and anthropological research emphasizes ethnographic research, which can be done by not just anthropologists, but also other social scientists, and is a really important part, I think, especially in places where quantitative data is really hard to come by. And so, in terms of what makes a good anthropologist, it's really debatable question amongst anthropologists themselves, but I think that one strong emphasis that comes through is the having part of your research be an extensive period of time of actually living or dwelling in the place that you're researching. Um, and so that allows you to really get into the nitty-gritties of the dynamics of the place that you're going to. Um, and I think for a good anthropologist, you have to be willing to have your assumptions about most of your questions or your your basic assumptions challenge. And so I think that's a really important part of the research component that's often really difficult to um, acknowledge or write about when you're writing your results. That's true. Authoritative and as assured as possible, even though what we're studying is incredibly complex and complicated. And it's so difficult taking this, this complicated phenomena and trying to translate it as as as, comprehens as comprehensively as you can in a way that's understood by others. Um, my qualitative research professor, I remember him telling us that ultimately our job was to try and dissect whatever the phenomena was and to, mm -hmm. to understand it from every perspective mm -hmm. um, so that we presented information that then allowed for was the words he used he uses very he uses very nice words and then I quoted them that sounds terrible I apologize <laughs> good <laughs> but yeah but but the point is to to really really understand what's going on and once you have all that information then you can begin to form theories and patterns and understand how everything interacts together so now, you know, based on all of this, and I'm super excited about your work and the things that you're doing, could you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got into anthropology? Yeah, sure. So uh, anthropology is actually a funny discipline. I think a lot of people still associate it with archaeology, which is definitely a part of anthropology. But specifically what I do is cultural anthropology. Um, and so, again, yeah, we focus on mostly contemporary issues and 
our research process involves a long time, spending a long time somewhere. And I guess how I got to that discipline was quite strange. I took mostly African-American, Asian-American, um, Native American studies, and those were all cross-listed anthropology. And I kind of realized then how anthropology tries to really grapple with complexity. So looking at dynamic phenomena like, for example, like we have here, movements, transnational movements of things and people between vastly different places and kind of what to make sense, like how to make sense of that, what is going on. And so that really involves getting your hands dirty and, and getting on the ground um, and figuring out what, what is going on. Um, and I think one interesting thing as well about anthropology is, and I think other social sciences can learn to do well, is trying to think about new ways of research that involves kind of more collaborative reporting of people on the ground um, to report as well as researchers themselves going out. Um, yeah. That's really neat. Can, can, let me butt in real quick and let me ask you, Vivian, have you ever read Return to Laughter? I haven't, actually. Okay, so I, I asked because it's uh, my favorite anthropological novel about an anthropologist who, who went to Nigeria. Oh. Um, back, man, I guess back in the 60s, I think. Mm -hmm. But, um, like, as an African historian, I love anthropologists because you guys, like, helped me do a lot of the research that I couldn't do myself. So... Issues about oral history, mm -hmm. um, it, issues about how how to look at a at a historical event, but through the lens of the culture producing it, super duper important. So I tip my hat to you. I I agree. I mean, I think anthropology and also I mean reading fiction, reading all sorts of qualitative reports or research about where you're researching is really important because, as we've mentioned before, it's quantitative data can really only tell you so much. And even looking at macro or meta-narratives of what's going on in China or in Africa, I mean, how you're actually going to get the information of what any of those numbers um, or any of these trends actually mean to a place or to a group of people, you're really only going to get through in-depth um, in depth interviewing, hanging out, reading um, things that they're writing themselves, etc. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I should read that novel, definitely. Um, <laughs> As part of my my research, I, I I will I will email I will email you the the information. Would you like to share any of your findings with us? In particular, do you have any hilarious stories you would like to tell? Hmm. <laughs> Let's see. I have some strange anecdotes, like most good anthropologists. <laughs> that's that's what we got you on here for. But I guess one like I'll talk about the briefly about the DRC work, but um, when I got on the plane to Lumumbashi from Addis Ababa, the flight attendant cart, you know, they usually have like juice and water and snacks and stuff like that. It rolled out and it was like a fully stocked liquor selection, like straight up bar. And everyone on the flight was getting like drunk and super excited. And I was really weirded out because I was going to Lumumbashi Democratic Republic of the Congo, and I had no idea why people were, like, partying on the on the plane. And then when we landed in Lumumbashi, I stood up, and, like, I realized, I thought, I think I was, like, one of the only people that actually got off the plane. So the other people were, like, two Congolese guys and one Chinese man. And then 
I stood up and I started getting out and it was so weird. And I was like, what, why aren't you guys getting out? And they're like, we're all on vacation to Malawi. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I was like, oh crap. I just, I don't know. I really was like taken aback by that. It's like, oh, okay. What kind of place am I going to where only four people get off the plane? But anyway, yeah, it was really interesting once I got there. Um, In terms of findings, I mean, that research, I was interviewing Congolese merchants who were going to Dubai and Asia. Uh, I think the main thing that struck me was the way that people talked about globalization there, right? Usually in the media, we hear about it as flows, um, as increase of speed between people through technology. Um, But something that people kept talking about in globalization there was how globalization really restricted um, their economic opportunities, which meant that um, there was a lot of economic volatility the more that their economies were reliant on the U.S. dollar, for example. And people were even saying, like, you know, okay, we can go to China, get all these clothes, but it still feels like an imposition of other cultures on us because what kind of clothes can you even get in China? They're all kind of Western inspired and so people were talking about how globalization was kind of forcing change in a in a strange way where they were um and so i thought that was a really interesting i guess component of globalization that i hadn't really thought about before it was also post um financial crisis so everyone there was able to talk week to week you know the different fluctuations of what happened during the financial crisis in 2008 um you know the one obviously centered in the US the um, one that's keeping me from getting a job exactly and I'm, I'm familiar with that one has extreme had really wide implications but i mean i felt like in the US we had a sense right that there were things going wrong but in the DRC, people were outlining, they're like, oh, yeah, this month and this week in 2008, this happened, and then this happened. And there was a really, really intense sensitivity of their economy to what was going on miles away. And I was coming from, you know, a college where a lot of the fellow students were going into finance. But I didn't, I was struck. I, I thought, you know, those, they really don't have any sense that their actions are affecting people, right, as far as this small street vendor in, in Congo. And that was something that was really yeah, striking. Dang, man, that is really striking. Uh, wow. Dr. Kalu, you want to jump in? Um, no, I, that's, a, that's a really, really interesting perspective um, because, you know, we hear a lot about how being connected across the world is better and then you don't hear about how it's hurting, you know, traditions and cultures and other things and other value sets that people hold on to. Um, that's that's really quite interesting. Um, I do want to know, though, if you had any um, any kind of fun stories or little jams that you got into while doing your research, because um, I had one. I had a series of like four days where um, I faced out the barrel of an AK-47. I got stranded in an elevator because the power went out, and then somebody tried to um, to steal a bag out of my car mm. <laughs> um, while I was doing my research. So I don't know. Did you ever have any of those sorts of incidents? Um, you know, it's funny. It's actually not so much in Congo. I now I'm in Niger- working in Lagos, and you know. Within one day, you have, like, yeah, all of those things plus more, including just, like, I've been on buses where half the people jump out, and I have no idea why. We're going down a highway, so I'm 
thinking, oh, should I jump out or not? And it's all very chaotic. Um, but in DRC, when I was there, at least in Lumumbashi, it's, it was, it's um, kind of more in the Zambian Copper Belt region. Yeah. It's very quiet. Um, but one strange incident that happened was as soon as I arrived at the, the university house in Lumumbashi, these two people came knocking on my door, and I look outside, and there are these, like, two middle-aged Chinese dudes, and they were, like, very curiously, like, looking at me, and they are what are you doing here? And the strangest part is they're actually from my mom's um, hometown in China. What? So they spoke the same dialect. Wow. Like, literally one in a million, or probably more than that, right? Wh- whatever. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a populous country, so maybe yeah. one in a few million chance that that happens. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and they lived across the street from me, um, and were building a building that was next to, uh, where I lived. Um, so I used to go over at night, uh, like for dinner and things like that when I wouldn't go out, you know, further than across the street. So who did the cooking? Um, it's really interesting. I think this is quite common across. So my, yeah, I've. I've only had intermittent contact with, I guess, Chinese construction companies just from personal experience um, being in DRC in Nigeria. But something I noticed was that people, uh, the companies will often bring like one cook for maybe a, t- a team of, of construction workers. So it was this one guy who all day he went around to Congolese markets to look for kind of the qu- Chinese equivalent uh, ingredients and cooked so they lived abroad for like six years, but they had this one guy that would cook familiar food for them. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's interesting. It was uh, really interesting um, how how I think how lonely a lot of those construction workers felt, and and having any connection through home, through food, through TV. We watched a ton of CCTV and like kung fu movies. What what CCTV? What channel? I think it was, it wasn't the English one. It was some, the, I actually don't know CCTV 9 is the English one. They have like one, two, three, five is the sports. Okay. Um, I think th- they had access to a bunch, like they had hooked up these satellites. So I saw, I, I think they had a few channels in Chinese. Any, any, any shows that you thought were good? Um, they were mostly Kung Fu movies and the TV <laughs> was extraordinarily small. So I actually really couldn't even watch most of it. <laughs> We just kind of hung out. They played mahjong, that oh. kind of stuff. Uh, were, were were you a good player? Were they good players? Um, I can play. I don't know how to bet, so I I don't think I was very good. And we were betting Congolese money, which is like the highest denomination is worth about fifty cents USA. <laughs> so okay. it was like you know, I wasn't I wasn't devastated by my poor mahjong skills. <laughs> Oh man, that 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 sounds actually like a lot of fun, and uh, I de- it was fun, but it was you. also really um, sobering in a lot of ways. I think, yeah, they were quite lonely, and they couldn't really move around because they didn't have access to cars. So um, they moved around when the company wanted them to move around, you know. So it, it was interesting. I I don't know the I haven't really read anything yet on the kind of those internal dynamics of how labor and construction labor is, you know, kind of controlled by the companies, but it seemed like a very lonely, a lonely <laughs> experience. And most of them had kids around my age, so they were all, like, telling me about them and that kind of thing. Oh, wow. Did, did any of them try to set you up with, with their kids back home? No, they didn't. I think they were... T- 
I don't know if I was the epitome of what a Chinese parent would. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> that's a like, little honest. <laughs> why are you? But you're at Stanford. Go. <laughs> you're getting a, you're getting a PhD at Stanford. Know, they met her in Congo. Yeah, they were weirded out by why I was alone in in Africa. That was partly why they kept being like, "You need to come here for dinner so you don't get in trouble or whatever." <laughs> That's I, I think that's so fantastic and, and you bring up a really good point about the, the, the loneliness that, that punctuates a lot of these Chinese laborers' lives and something that um that we hear about a lot. And at ASA they um they were talking about I believe um Solange Guo Shatayard um, Shatayard. I can never pronounce her name. Yeah, I think Shatayard. Shatayard, yeah. You say it. But anyways yeah. she, <laughs> she she was talking um uh, uh, about that as well and it's it's a tough existence. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's and and you're right. There, I don't think there's much literature on it as as there there could be. And I'm gonna, you know, use that to kind of segue into talking about identity issues, and not just with the merchants that you deal with and with the Congolese that you dealt with, but how the identity of the researcher affects the research. Um, some of these stories that you shared might have only happened because you are a Chinese American woman, mm-hmm. and so. And mm-hmm. you obviously care about identity, so why, why don't you, you let us know about about your thoughts on these, these topics? Yeah, um, identity, it's such a tricky thing to talk about, right? And um, we're only going to do it in like a few minutes. Yeah, but it's a really important issue, I think, in, um, in a lot of anthropological, social science fieldwork. Um, and I think one productive way to think about it is um, not necessarily like, oh, because of my identity, I can only do X or only ask these questions, right? But thinking about how who you are affects how people are going to answer, right? But then using that to the best that you can to get the kinds of information that other people aren't going to be able to get or that will be really difficult for other people to get. Um, and that's not like in a competitive way, you know, like, oh, I'm just going to get, you know, whatever other people can't do. But <laughs> thinking about like, what what what, what does that perspective um contribute, right, to academic literature. And so I think something that I mentioned earlier is because I'm Chinese-American, that was kind of how my first interest was piqued in in these transnational networks. But um, obviously, you know, you can become interested in that issue in a lot of ways. But I think something that's helped me um, is that there are Chinese women at a lot of these trade sites, and so people assume I'm, you know, working for a company, or I'm just, like, some merchant's wife, or maybe I'm a merchant myself. There's all these kinds of ways that me being there doesn't really stand out in any particular way. Um, And so even in Nigeria, like, there are other Chinese people there, and also I I know quite a few couples, um, like Nigerians, who've married um, not just Chinese, but Malaysian, Vietnamese women. So, like, even when I walk on the street, half the time people are like, oh, are you Malaysian? My sister-in-law is Malaysian. Like, you should meet her, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, but I think what that enables me to do is, I think, move through some of the Lagos markets and feel relatively um, not super intrusive. Like, I won't have, like, crowds gathering around me, watching me as I interview or talk to people. Um, And so, of course, when I actually interview people, I'm very clear about who I am. Obviously, ethically, you have to do that kind of stuff. And just because you want to have an honest conversation. Um, But I think, yeah, it's it's important to think about what kinds of 
we're all these unique researchers, right, in this very dynamic field, and we can all provide a lot of really interesting information. And it's just, um, I think, one important thing that, does again, doesn't really get talked about in social sciences that often because I think people, again, we're so focused on our results. It's kind of embarrassing or, you know, um, like kind of like the dirty secrets in the closet kind of thing of how you actually get to your results. But I think that can be really productive to talk about to say, okay, you know, like I was able to find out this stuff. Um, people, you know, were or receptive of me um, asking these kinds of questions. So I am able to find out more about personal histories of XYZ, you know, versus questions that someone else might ask. So, um, yeah, I, I like thinking about it in kind of a very productive way, not just... Um, thinking that, you know, because identity, you are this, you ex you can only do this. So, I, yeah, I don't know if that's yeah helpful, but I love your answer, but I'm disappointed that you didn't go into the more militant talking about identity, which would mm -hmm. have been a, a very fun conversation. I I I I say this because my my own um, experience in undergrad and ad graduate school and, and grappling with these issues and sometimes this stuff can get really heated, which makes for great podcast fodder. <laughs> but but your your conversation is very yeah, your your answer is very enlightened and 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 very generous and a, a good answer nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure well <laughs> I actually, you touched on something that I'm going to ask like a tangential question about. Um, when I was in Nigeria doing my research, one of the things I heard about in Lagos from the Nigerian Institute of International Affairs was the um, increasing phenomenon of Asian women, particularly Chinese women, coming to Nigeria to find Nigerian husbands. Mm -hmm. And I've asked every other researcher about this and nobody's heard of this, but you then talked about... Um, Chinese women and Vietnamese women and Malaysian women that are married to Nigerians. Mm -hmm. um, so I was wondering if you knew if this was a thing where and like you know where they were meeting their husbands. If they, you know, yeah. do you have any sort of familiarity with that? Um, I have. Well, I mean, just uh, kind of uh, just anecdotal evidence from being in Lagos and also in Dubai and Guangzhou. Um, but something that people have told me, I haven't heard so much Chinese women necessarily coming specifically to find uh, Nigerian husbands. But what I have heard is because there are so many Nigerians in so many trade sites, not just in China, but in Dubai, in Vietnam, in Thailand, in India, um, and Malaysia, especially for um, educational opportunities, that then people meet um, Nigerian guys abroad and then kind of are brought back or the couple will move between the two different places. Um, so I've definitely heard that. And uh, yeah, again, like I've had, I can't even count how many people who've kind of approached me and just been like, my sister-in-law is Malaysian or Chinese or blah, blah, blah. And they want to like, maybe they'll say a few words to me in Chinese and then just kind of like keep walking. So it's like, okay, <laughs> cool. <laughs> but I mean, there's enough, uh, that happened to me enough times that I, 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 it has to be some kind of, some kind of trend. Yeah. Cool. So, Dr. Kalu, our next business opportunity is to set up a dating service. Pretty much, yep. yep. And, and, like and a website, maybe have it be like bilingual, you know, like yes. translate. There's, there's a Chinese flag for the Chinese version and a Nigerian flag for Pigeon English. I'm kidding. <laughs> oh my English. gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but it could be something. I mean, and I've met quite a few of these couples. I know there's another. There's a PhD student who's doing work specifically in Guangzhou, specifically on 
uh, interracial couples. I'm pretty sure Nigerian. Yeah. Um, so. oh, I, for, I forgot her. I forgot her name, but she actually gave me a um, a bottle of I think Chivas Regal that she couldn't take on the uh, plane with her. That I'm going to drink with her when she comes back to the U.S. Yeah, well, we can link stuff later. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see what she comes up with when she's done with her research. Yeah, it will be. <laughs> All right, <laughs> Vivian. So, yeah. what do you think about the state of the China Africa field? Is there such a field? Um, what's going on with it? Sure. Um, I guess I'm not sure if I think of it necessarily as like a field, but more of a way to think about transnational connections beyond what we usually have in area studies. Um, which, you know, is... Could, yeah, could you elaborate on area well, studies? Well, I guess usually right now, and especially in academia, it's like we have African studies, Latin American studies, American studies, Asian, whatever, East Asian studies, South Asian. So it's very divided amongst these kind of... I think it was during the Cold War when it really got um, kind of split up in this way. And so right now it's cool to see that we're trying to, you know, move beyond that. Obviously, it's really difficult. Um but I think there's a lot of potential in that way. Um, I think it also comes from a very, how do I put this? Maybe this will be a little more controversial, um, like you like, Winslow. Yes, I love um, I it. Think, I think China-Africa is kind of a term that allows mostly Western scholars to think about connections between two places that they don't usually understand as connected. Um, and so I think it, it's like a, I think in that way it's, it's good to think about why even China Africa together and why is it so surprising or jarring or kind of sparks the interest of so many people, I think, because usually we don't think of those places as very connected. Um, and I guess ultimately I'm not sure I think it's a field in that I wouldn't really think African studies is a field necessarily, but... I, Ooh, you're really getting pushing yourself out there in terms of the controversial statements. <laughs> well, the anthropologist me wants to like encourage everyone to study the complexity of transnational connections, right? And for based in my research, I work in Nigeria mostly, and a lot of those merchants do go to China, right? But they go to so many other places. That's I think the, a really interesting part of it is that um, I think China offers a useful lens for certain things, policies, um, certainly intergovernment relations, those kinds of things. Um, but, you know, it doesn't, it's not like a catch-all net that can catch what people are actually doing in China and or in Africa and between the two. So, like most of the people I work with, uh, Dubai is actually a really, really, really key node in that whole network. Um, people also go to Turkey, Thailand, Vietnam. Um, and so... Yeah, I think I think it's important to um, while we're using China and Africa to get people to think in new ways about transnational connections. Also, be careful that it's not kind of overly deterministic of what we think people in those places are doing. If that makes sense. I I think it does make sense. Um, Dr. Kalu, you wanna you wanna close this out? Um. Yes. Sure. Um. Yeah, I think that's awesome. <laughs> Um, no, I think um, you raise a very valid point. Um, it's it can be limiting when we think about the idea of studies as a field or as a specific um, 
act or activity. And I think this is where both of our backgrounds um, as qualitative researchers who are looking to understand the phenomenon, we, we tend to be averse to labels and to and to structures and formats because that might that might, you know, cover some of some of the phenomenon we, we have yet to understand as, and might um, keep us from really seeing, you know, the fuller picture of what's actually going on. But mm-hmm. um, I, I do think that it's important that we're just, we're beginning to discuss the issues of, um, of politics and economic integration um, mm-hmm. in, in, the, in, in Asia, in China, and also in Africa. And mm-hmm. we're beginning to acknowledge through use of labels like China Africa, mm-hmm. that the world is um, increasingly multi multipolar. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we're you know we've stepped so far away from the bipolarity of the Cold War, and there's so many players whose decisions have an immediate impact all right. over the world, and um, and it's important that they have you know, their day in the light and, and that we study and understand what's going on so that even for ourselves and our nations or our people groups, we're, we're making the right sorts of um, decisions and policies to move forward in the future. Um, I'm really, really excited about your research and um, I'd love, love, love to read it when it finally comes out. Um, I like think that we could probably go ahead. <laughs> no, it's going to be a few years. That's all right. I can wait. I'm patient. <laughs> um, I think that's it for me, Winslow. Do we want to move to closing thoughts from everybody else? Yeah, I, I, closing thoughts from Vivian. Oh, um, I guess I'm really excited that uh, you're having your interest in particularly ethnographic um, or anthropological research. Uh, I think that's something that at the ASAs I was really excited to see a lot of uh, younger or scholars, like, kind of still in the PhD process, uh, really put um, a lot of effort into. Um, And I think it'll add a lot of color and also hopefully change a lot of um, the ways that we're thinking about Africa, China, all of these big names as as, um, just these, I don't know, I guess it's kind of intimidating just to think of, like, China and Africa and what's going on, right? And so really providing the texture of what's going on in everyday life, um, I think is, is what's, what's really needed. I think, you know, we can all read media, we can all read the kind of journalist narratives about it, but actually going beyond that, um, takes a lot, a lot of work. And unfortunately a lot of it is very time intensive, so it does have a lag, but I was joking earlier, it'll take a few years, but hopefully I'll be, um, I mean, I know I'll be writing up shorter things as we go along. So thanks for, yeah, thanks for having me on. This has been really uh, fun and interesting to, as I'm beginning my whole research process again. <laughs> again. All, all, all right. Well, we're, we're going we're gonna to move on to recommendations real quick. Uh, Dr. Kalu, can we start with you? Uh, sure thing. Um, and kind of tying back to my earlier statements about Nelson Mandela, my recommendation this week um, is Long Walk to Freedom. Um by the esteemed Nelson Mandela, who left us earlier this week. Um, I think that it's it's an interesting and inspiring book that really should be um, to be read by any and everyone. So 
Yay. Yeah, you, you can get it at the library, or I got mine on my Kindle for like seven bucks. Yeah. It was um, actually, I think, hold on, I, I Googled this earlier, and um, if you do Google it, I think MandelaDay.org has a free. Um, a free copy of it online but if you google it there might even be free downloads of it so it's readily accessible take the time out and read it you won't regret it i i'm reading it right now i i second i think it's really really cool really really awesome book um oh do you want to mention the um film screening oh and the, um later this week i believe it's on tuesday of this week the south africa Washington um, International Program is hosting a private screening and reception of the movie Mandela Long Walk to Freedom that features um, Idris Elba. And um, the event is on Eventbrite. I'm not sure that there's still tickets, but um, I'd say go ahead and check because it's a wonderful. Um, I've heard nothing but rave reviews. I won't see it till Tuesday. And then you can know what I think about it when I blog after that. But um, I recommend that you see the movie, if not an advanced screening. See it when it comes out and everywhere. Fantastic. Vivian, what, uh, what about you? What do you recommend for us? Sure, I just read something this week. If you want to read something very short and very intriguing, uh, there's a short piece published by a Nigerian uh, writer, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And she wrote in the New York Times, it's just a short kind of anecdote, and I'll just describe it as, it's about a flight, a diversion, and a baby. That, that <laughs> That's it. is intriguing. That, yeah. Vivian, you got, a, you, got a good, you got a good, you know, turn of phrase right there. I, I, now I really want to read it. Yeah, it's called A Flight Diversion. So I, I use <laughs> the title mostly for that description, but <laughs> it's very good. All right, and then I actually have three recommendations. Um, two are for events in the D.C. area. So uh, Dr. Kalu mentioned uh, an events film screening. There's two China events that I just heard about while reading through my morning Twitter. And one of them is China's Treatment of Foreign Journalists, uh, which is being held by the Congressional Executive Commission on China. And it's going to be here in D.C., uh, on Wednesday, December 11th from 3.30 p.m. until 5 p.m. And I, I, the, the way China's treatment of foreign journalists, has, uh, there's been an ongoing issue, but, but it, I think the, the major turning point was when uh, Melissa Chan from Al Jazeera was um, more or less kicked out of the country. And just a lot of crazy stuff has happened since then. And maybe the New York Times Bureau and Bloomberg's uh, China bureaus are, are going to be kicked out because they can't get visas in time. It's a really cool issue. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to attend, but if you're in D.C. and you want to learn a little bit about China's soft power, because it does have Africa implications, um, I, I, I definitely recommend attending that. There's a similar event going on on the same day, um, but this time by the Wilson Center, and it's from 9 a.m. until 10.30 a.m., and it's U.S.-China Relations Year in Review, 2013, the Year of the Snakes, Sunnylands, and Suppression, and a plenum and an ADIS, or the, um, the Air Defense Identification Zone. And it's basically the same day, and all, like the speakers there are really amazing. The speakers and the um, foreign journalists are also really amazing. 
Um, and if you're interested in China at all, just cut, just don't go to work on Wednesday and go to these things because they're going to be freaking awesome. Last thing, I came across this, um, this piece on a blog. It's called Who is a Terrorist? And it talks about um, the label terrorist is applied to Nelson Mandela because w when he died, there were a lot of obituaries that came out. And some of the obituaries that came out kind of said some stuff that wasn't really very cool. And this is actually by Dr. Nkem Kalu. And it's a really, really cool piece, and it's, it's, it's very personal. So it's, it's what she thinks and what she believes, and I'm totally going to scoop it and put it on the calories and rice blog. And, and it, it, it just talks about the term, how it's applied, and, and in this context, whether it should have been applied. And it's, 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 I think, a really, really interesting piece and something I'd recommend our listeners to, to check out. Um... Let's see. Okay, before we sign off, how do people find you on the interwebs, Vivian? Do you have a website or a Twitter account you'd like to share with us? Um, sure, you can. This is very dorky, but you can find me on academia.edu. Um, that is very dorky, and I love it. <laughs> and I love um, it. I also have Twitter. I tweet relatively infrequently, but I still really enjoy Twitter. Um, I sound like an old person there. Really enjoy. No, no, no. An old Great. person would say, "I don't know what Twitter is." Okay, that's you, fair enough. You, you, you are young. Um, but I do use the Twitter, and my uh, handle is the Morning Snows, uh, which is actually my middle name in Chinese. Oh. Yeah. It's very cool. The Morning Snows. That's it. Uh, Just uh, one word. Uh, all, all right. It sounds. Sounds great. Do you, do you want to mention your blog at all, even if it's not China Africa related? Sure. I work on a blog. It's called Microaggressions. Um, you can find it on uh, microaggressions.com, and it's it's a kind of anonymous, user-based uh, Crap. So project. I basically outed you in an anonymous blog. I'm no, 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 no. Um, it's... They're, yeah, no, no, it's not super anonymous, but I don't, um, the idea is that people actually submit a lot of things and we post them, and they're mostly about race, gender, sexuality, uh, in, mostly in the United States. Could, could you elaborate on what the term microaggressions means? Sure, microaggressions, it was a term in psychology, I believe, um, at, that first originated there, and it was to describe the ways in which kind of everyday interactions between people convey... Um, messages and often derogatory messages about uh, marginalized social groups. So, for example, like for me as Asian American, when people are asking, "Oh, you you're saying you speak English very well, right?" It's saying other things besides the fact that I speak English. It's conveying that they assumed I didn't speak English, or um, yeah. So that's an example of one. But it's the everyday's that everyday everyday incidences that occur. Um, when you belong to a marginalized identity. And it's just a platform, really, to um, give people examples of what those might look like. Awesome. That, th thank you so much for, for letting us know. Mm -hmm. Dr. Kalu, how do people find you? Oh, well, you know, I'm on the Twitter sphere. That happened a couple months ago. Um, I can be found on Twitter at nchemekalu. And I also blog 
hold on, I have to look it up because apparently I also don't remember what my blog address is. nkemkalu.wordpress.com, I believe. Yep, that's what it is. And those are the places that you can find me. And... Oh, and Cowrie's Rice. That's the right. important one. And Cowrie's Rice. <laughs> that's the important one. But, um, but, but yeah, we're... we're we, I have gotten her posts up on the blog, but we're we're still working on on a good mechanism to to have them link. But I'm happy that you're you're blogging again. That you, you know the blogging juices are flowing within you. It's coming. It's coming. I tell you. It it, it, <laughs> it is coming, and and cowries and rice are gonna benefit. As for myself, I can be found. We can be found. Um, so it's not just me because I'm I'm getting guest posts. Uh, cowries and rice, and it's basically. Uh, cowriesrice.blogspot.com my twitter handle is at winslow underscore r I've been tweeting a lot of China Africa news I, I, w- I actually followed um, Nelson Mandela's death over twitter when, when the president of South Africa was announcing he's, he's going to make a huge announcement and I tracked that and, and it was just, um, just a really interesting really interesting scene and that's that's kind of it. Vivian, thank you yeah. so thank much for joining us. Thank you. We, we definitely have to have you come on more and talk about your research because, you know, you're an underground anthropologist, so you're going to have amazing stories to share. Yeah, I'll start in the field uh, next, next, year, next summer. So Ooh. I'll have content coming out we, along that. One of the themes that we might try to put together, like, like for our monthly themes, being an Asian woman in Africa. Mm-hmm. So we might have to have you come back and during that month and, and maybe share your experiences as well. I, that sounds like something I'm qualified for. I, I do think you're qualified, so yeah. And, and yeah, just thank you because I know it's a Sunday and it's... Uh, about what three fifteen over there, yeah. and, and I'm sure a beautiful winter in Northern California where there is no real winter. It's uh, pretty cold though, actually. It's been freezing. It night. does get cold. It was cold while while I was there. It's, but it's you're right. It's usually not this cold. It, yeah, but it's it's like brisk cold, like you know, top of the mountain cold. Like sure. it's 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 like freezing rain out here in in in, okay. in DC. I mean, we, yeah, we're. Unfortunately. Yeah, it's, it sucks <laughs> over here. But yeah, to, thank you so much for, for giving us uh, your time. We would like to thank African Development Jobs and the Africa Daily. African Development Jobs just put our podcast up on their website, like a link to it. So that's really cool. And like the logo they use is humongous. So I'm super, super stoked about that. This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher. It's on iTunes. So review it on iTunes and like it and yeah that's, that's kind of it uh, we're going to hit up more media platforms in the future we'd also like to thank Mighty Mike of Pulse Recordings for composing a theme song and thank you dear listener for giving us your time take care